Hello and welcome back to the Out of Hours podcast. I hope you're doing well. Before we start, I'm excited to introduce our sponsor for this episode. This episode is sponsored by Tribe. Tribe is now one of the UK's leading plant-based nutrition brands and they've got a community of over 100,000 everyday athletes. Tribe creates delicious, all-natural plant-based snacks, which are also gluten-free. And they're giving Out of Hours listeners a very special discount. You can get your first pack of six of their nutrition bars for just £2, which includes shipping. Head to wearetribe.co slash outofhours and use the code tribeoutofhours, which is all one word. I'll leave a link in the show notes and let me know if you check it out. First of all, I owe my entire career and business success to side projects. Everything that I've worked on that have turned into something of a note had started as a side project. The side project allows you to sidestep all this anxiety. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient and more confident. There are barriers that stop us from starting, sometimes time, money or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects, and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have David Hanemeyer Hansen, the co founder and CTO of Basecamp, a best selling author and creator of Ruby on Rails. Ruby on Rails is a free, open-source web application framework. Hundreds of thousands of applications have been built with the framework since its release in 2004, when David was just 24. And some of the biggest companies in the world were built with it. Airbnb, Shopify, Twitch and Square, just to name a few. He's also built hugely successful companies. Basecamp started as a side project for him and his co-founder Jason and has now made him a millionaire, serving millions of users across the world. Alongside all of this, he's also an author. He's written three books, including New York Times bestseller, Rework. He's also a Le Mans class winning racing driver. Out of Hours was actually set up with two meanings. One, that we can work on things that bring us joy outside of our main hours. And the other, that we are all running out of hours. So if not now, when? Even though he'd started all of his biggest projects as side projects, this is not a traditional podcast episode. We talk much more about the other meaning of out of hours. We talk about everything from why intrinsic motivation matters so much, open source, why he was a terrible employee, how to build your own internal sense of control, why he doesn't set goals, how he found out money doesn't make him happy, and whether he'll ever go into politics. I hope you enjoy. reason I wanted to speak to you was because you just do hundreds of things. I was like, whoa, he does so many different things that are totally different from one another and doesn't feel the need to do one thing and be defined by that. But let's start with this. One of the things that you say is what you do is your legacy. 
what would you want to be written on your metaphorical tombstone? That's a good question. It's, it's actually a question I've tried to consciously avoid. I think you can fall into very easily this trap of thinking what, about what other people should think about you when you're no longer here. And I think one of the uh, lessons of existentialism I've drawn away is that there is no after. We are just a brief moment in time. And when it's gone, almost regardless of the influence we may have had for a brief moment of time, we, we will be forgotten. And that's okay. It's okay to simply leave your mark while you're here and have that fade away relatively quickly. I think there are a lot of people who are essentially battling with the sense of their own mortality by trying to create that legacy. And it mm -hmm. becomes a project that in many ways is fake, right? You're, you're trying to manifest this idea of who you were and what should people think about when you're no longer here? When, I, I try not to think too much about that. I try to think more about just on a, on a daily or a weekly basis, am I doing the quote unquote right things? Am I doing the right things by me? Am I doing the right things by the communities that I'm in? Am I doing the right thing by the people I meet and are in my life? And that's enough. I, I don't think there is anything else. It, this is exactly why... Your show being out of hours is something I take quite literal in the mm. sense of I know the hours are running out. Um, in addition to existentialism, the other branch of philosophy that I'm very keen on is um, um, is stoicism. Um, stoicism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's stoicism, and Seneca has this uh, whole notion of life being long enough. If you live life well. It's long enough. And the 70, 80, I think the average life expectancy in Denmark right now is, is 82 years for, for males. It's enough if we spend it well. Right? And I mean, that's perhaps the uh, hard part here is that most people don't spend it well. Most people will look back upon a decade gone by and think, geez, what, what happened? Have you read the book, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan? Yes, yes, loved it. So you know how he talks a lot about sort of ego death, the knowledge that, that we're part of a much bigger thing in lots of different ways. I think that concept's really interesting. What I think it links to is this idea of removing the ego from work. And it's one of the reasons that I am interested in side projects as opposed to side hustles. It's semantics, but I think it speaks a bit more to this idea of experimentation, curiosity, you know, not worrying too much about the outcome. And I think the embodiment of this is open source. Open source is on paper quite crazy, especially within this kind of capitalist world we live in. Why would anyone work for hours and hours and hours without getting paid, without often without getting any recognition is such an interesting phenomenon to me. So you built Ruby on Rails when you were, how old were you? 18 years, 22. 22. You were earning $25 an hour, but yet you still decided for it to be open source and to give it away for free. Why did you decide to do that? I think what's so fascinating about this discussion is that we are confounded about it in the first place. And mm. I think the reason we are is because we've been uh, propagandized with this idea of the rational person, the rational economic person who just does things out of their own advantage 
and for their own gain. And this is the um, framework of capitalism. And when that framework of capitalism then meets the intrinsic human need to unfold your capacities and simply do things because you want to do them, because there is a joy in doing things, there's a mismatch. The notion of the rational economic being is false. It was just something we made up. And we made it up to underpin this understanding of capitalism to make the whole system work. That this is, this is how we tell ourselves that this has to be. And it goes hand in hand with this other notion of humanity, which is the belief that people are fundamentally lazy. Mm -hmm. And that they're not interested in exerting energy. They're not interested in doing anything unless they can get this specific advantage. And this is how we've structured all sorts of schemes of employment with bonuses and stretch goals. And it's all built on essentially a lie. Humans are not lazy. There's so much more to humanity. I had a traditional business education, joint degree in computer science and business administration. And I got all the capitalist sort of indoctrination through that. I was actually doing that at the same time as I was getting into open source. At first, I never tried to reconcile it, right? Like they were almost two separate parts of the brain just operating. I was learning about how profit um, optimization and maximization was working while at the same time just having fun programming, right? These activities that aren't easily explained by traditional economic thinking, that it is simply fun to do things that you're good at to do things that you have an inclination for, that you're learning. And open source is a truly unique way of expressing those capacities in a social setting. Like, I'm making open source both because I enjoy programming and I enjoy putting it out there and because I enjoy interacting with people um, through the means of professional development. And then also th there's all these other notions of, of, uh, of a debt to, to an ecosystem or, or beliefs that I got into programming because of open source, because it was available. I didn't have to purchase software. I didn't have to purchase all these other things. The, the book Flow talks about when are the happiest moments of, of life. And the, the author had done a, a ton of studies on this and, and kept coming back to these moments of complete uh, absorption when you're just in it and you lose track of time and space. And that was what programming did for me. That was what developing open source did for me. I, I was losing track of time and space and I was just engrossed in the problems of programming, getting better, reaching just beyond my current capabilities, capacities. And that was the reward. If someone had paid me to do this open source work, I would have attached a label of money to my time. And then all of a sudden it wouldn't have been about like, can I get better? Can I share more? It would have been like, is this fair? Do I feel like my, my time is valued properly, right? Like one of these other underpinnings of, of capitalism is time equals money, which is one of those profoundly damaging terms that we've just sort of accepted because it's, it sounds right. And I think this distinction that not all of your capacities, not all of your mental uh, processes, not all of your creations are for mm. sale is extremely important. I just want to go back to you saying that we are not rational actors. And I disagree that we're not rational actors, but I think we are not perhaps rational in the way that economists like to attribute value. 
you know, if you take how you're talking about the open source community, you're responding to incentives, you're responding to intrinsic and perhaps unquantified incentives as opposed to extrinsic quantified incentives. I know that you've also read Drive and love Drive, the book. And that reminds me of, you know, there's that experiment or that study with kindergarten, knowing how much they are rewarded, I think it's gold stars or something, makes them less inclined to do it again the next time if they aren't rewarded. Is it the fact that when there is an extrinsic measurement for something, so whether it's money, whether it's praise, whether it's promotion, external validation, is it that the reason that we we are drawn to that, but yet it makes us unhappy is because we are using someone else's yardstick or is it something else? I think that's one part of it. Once you place the locus of your happiness in someone else's mm-hmm. hands and you are now living under their judgment, it is a inherent loss of control. You're mm-hmm. no longer in control of your own happiness because you've literally given it to, to someone else to either increase or decrease. It reminds me of um, at, at base camp in the early days, we used to do bonuses just like everyone else. And, and the bonuses were just discretionary. And someone would get a, a great bonus one year because they had done something we thought like this was particularly worthy of um, monetary compensation. Then the next year, they just done their normal job and, and they got like a normal bonus. That's not how people see it. They see, I used to get X, now I'm getting half of X. What changed? Something horrible must have happened. Um, They see it as this external judgment, right? Which I just thought, like, the less we can have of that, the better. The, The more we can get away from this notion of constantly living under someone else's judgment, the happier we are. And this is one of the reasons that, first of all, I I made a poor employee that for myself, putting so much of my sense of worth in someone else's hands wasn't working well. I needed to have this very strong uh, internal barometer of how I was doing. It just gives you such a power to disconnect and just do things because you like doing them, not because you care about your legacy or what other people think or any of these other factors. It it is a way to gain self-control, which coming back to the Stoics is, is... the cornerstone of of the stoic belief, right? That that you should make your own judgment, your own evaluations, and and you should really filter out what other people think because you can't control that. And they may render their opinion based on a thousand different things that aren't even related to your your work. Uh, I face this all the time as a somewhat public person. Someone will have decided five years ago that they think I'm an idiot or an asshole because of something I said, right? And then that colors everything else. So I put something out now, maybe they would otherwise be inclined to agree with it. No, they think it's the the dumbest thing ever because it comes from me and they have a preconceived notion of it. And the same thing the other way around. Someone hears something, they read a a book they really like, and now they think everything I put out there is is, is golden. And surely uh, it is not. It just distorts all this stuff. So for me, I need to have this um, internal barometer of good and bad um, and, and when I do, it also gives me this path of, of improvement. If, you, if you're setting your own um, benchmark, um, you can keep going forever, which is one of the, the reasons I'm, I'm still here writing open source software 20 years after I started. And it's still such a joy. Mm. I want to ask a bit more about that sort of internal locus of control and how you develop it, because... I feel like from what you're saying, there's two benefits to it. One is cultivating that kind of 
learning mindset or or, be, or feeling more in control of your destiny. And the other one, and, t- and tell me if I'm reading into this, but is maybe a way of safeguarding your own kind of sanity it, when, when you're faced with all of these other voices and all these other people chiming in. You use Twitter a lot and, you know, you're putting your views out and you're going to be getting negative stuff back. Is that fair to say? Yes, I think it is. It used to be easier, I think, to just focus on your own sense of good and bad because you weren't constantly being, if not judged and uh, appraised or, or reacted to by others. And today, almost no matter what you do and how small the niche is, you have some sort of audience just through social media and through all these other internet channels. And I kind of feel like it's gotten harder to develop this sense mm. of intrinsic um, motivation and intrinsic worth and intrinsic judgment because we are so automatically judged with everything all the time. I think one of the worst inventions in the history of certainly computing, if not mankind, is the like button. The like button is just this hack of dopamine control that um, is incredibly addictive. Even when you know its addictive properties, it is very, very difficult to sidestep it. And I'm as uh, susceptible as anyone to that, which is one of the reasons I ended up quitting Instagram, for example. I I could observe what it was happening to my motivation for sharing certain things and certain images based on the reaction of a crowd. And I really didn't like Mm. that. Now... I am still on Twitter, although I just took a two-month break, which was sorely needed. I have lots of very conflicted uh, feelings about Twitter. And, uh, but on that notion in particular, this sense that like, there's constantly an audience and we're seeking to please that audience ends up developing for most people a very unauthentic self, that they're not who they want to be. They are the person who the crowd responds to best. And I'm constantly waging this battle with myself uh, where, to the point where I actually often get skeptical. Whenever I put something out there and like there's all these likes and there's all these applause, I, I get skeptical. Like, Did I do that just because I knew that that was the reception I was going to get? Or was I authentically on board with this message or this idea or this hot take? And it, it, it's very difficult. I, I don't think in large parts it's healthy. How do you, on a really practical level, how do you go about maintaining and setting your own internal principles? How do you go about kind of maintaining that internal locus of control and and then shutting out those external voices? In part by by writing things down, by committing to, to paper or keyboard, the ideas that are bouncing around in my head. I write things all the time that sound very sure because I'm having a conversation with myself, right? Can I actually convince myself of this, that this is actually true and this is actually good? And sometimes I can't, right? Um, And I find that the only way to really get into that is to examine the arguments from all these different angles. And for me, the best way to do that thorough examination is to share it because when I'm sharing it, it requires me to actually think it through because otherwise I am going to look like an uninformed yope on the internet. It's a funny thing. This idea that to share uh, raises the bar of the quality of the thinking, of the quality of the arguments, 
but I'm not, I mean, I'm doing those for, for intrinsic reasons, right? Like I'm doing it because I want to arrive at more thorough arguments and more um, examined convictions. Mm. And this is the, the other notion I like in that regard is, is this saying of strong opinions loosely held. You think this is the best knowledge that I have at the time, but if new information comes along or new insights or new aspects come along, I will change my mind. And I've been trying to learn the other mode, which is sort of more of a, a Kierkegaard idea of uh, everything is always ambiguous. And the doubt itself is in some ways harder, right? Like there, there's an ease to arriving at strong convictions and we see it on Twitter all day long. You talk a lot about the power of not knowing fee factor. Uh, you only got a driving license in the mid twenties and now you're a race car driver. And so I was curious, when's the last time that you felt like a total beginner? Well, one thing I was, I just took two months off from work and Twitter. In that time, I started um, going back to just some primary subjects of school. I was like, actually, I wonder how electricity works. Like, I, I don't actually, like, if, if you take, what is the relationships between amps and volts and, and watts? And I've become interested in, in uh, electric cars. I've been interested in cars for a while. And I'm really interested in electric cars. I'm like, I should... I know a bit about how a combustion engine works and pistons and drive shafts and, and all this stuff. I don't know very much about, or I can't remember my physics lessons about how electricity works. I um, looked up Khan Academy and just went to like essentially electricity 101 and just started learning it. And it was just such a fun rewind of like, I can vaguely remember in like seventh or eighth grade have had some of these lessons, but I've forgotten all about it. And I just got to start from scratch because I think this is the trap we fall into, particularly when we get good at one thing, we build the ego up to a point like I am a person who now knows things, right? Like we see this all the time that someone who knows something in one domain, they feel like they're instantly an expert in all sorts of other domains. I fall into that trap all the time myself. So explicitly putting yourself in an area where you say, I don't know anything here. I'm a complete noob and I have to learn it uh, and I have to leave my ego outside wherever I build up in these other domains. I can't take it with me. How do I get back to being a person who can absorb new material quickly with, with programming? For example, I, I would cultivate relationships, either actual relationships or, or distance relationships through books with authors where I would find out like who is the expert who knows most about this thing and let me, let me be in their shadow. It requires intentional unlearning and intentional distancing of that ego, right? Um, because it is the easiest thing just to fall in love with a notion of yourself as a person who knows things. I'm just increasingly thinking that it's one of the most important things is to cultivate this sense of being humble or being maybe humble is the wrong word I don't know but just being without ego one of the ways I've thought about it is to have this um, internal skepticism about your own accomplishments the easiest thing in the world is to fall in love with your own press once you've gotten some of it look at things with humility is perhaps a good word which is it's just so 
uh, ironic coming from me. My Wikipedia page for many years had this hotly contested section about how arrogant I was. I totally see how it got there because I remember giving a, a talk about Ruby on Rails in I think 2003 or 2004, where after I had sort of received this label by others, like you're an arrogant person, I thought, do you know what? Maybe I am. First of all, arrogance is not a caricature. It's a relationship between two people. Arrogance is one person thinking you're, you're full of it, right? Like you're, uh, you're appearing as, as though you know things, but I think you don't know things, right? So it's a difference of, agree or, or of opinion. <laughs> and I think in some ways I embrace that notion of arrogance from a bit of a defiance, right? Like if, if someone says you're arrogant, I say, yeah, fuck yeah, I'm arrogant, right? Like that's sort of just a, perhaps a confrontation of it, but more actually of a, a, as a defense of this internal locus of control. Like, I'm not going to think that I'm either good or bad because you say I'm good or I'm bad. And a good way to combat that is actually to continue to learn new things, to continue to be humbled by the fact that, that you don't know it all, right? As I said, when I started looking into sort of the basics of electricity, you go like, aren't I supposed to know this stuff? Like I, I work with computers all the time. Shouldn't I have a base understanding of it? And as soon as you go into this, right? Like these assumptions about the person you're supposed to be, it, mm. it becomes difficult to be vulnerable to the idea that like you don't know it all and, and you are a beginner and you're a total noob and I'm not smarter than a fifth grader in a certain topic. I try to consciously put myself in those situations because otherwise you end up in a very stagnant place very quickly. That is the other problem with both success and achievement of skill is that mm -hmm. you reach that point and it feels good. And now you're at this sort of plateau and you become defensive. You become defensive against people telling you you don't actually know shit or you become de defensive about being in these other domains where you're not so high up on, on the totem pole. And it's a really stagnant place to be. I guess that's like loss aversion, isn't yes. it? Yes. You're trying to maintain the state as opposed to obtain something else. What has been your experience with side projects? Because I know that a lot of your kind of biggest quote unquote successes have come from these kind of experiments and these kind of out of hours projects. What has been your experience with side projects? First of all, I owe my entire career and business success to side projects. Everything that I've worked on that have turned into something of note had started as a side project. The reason I love side projects is because I am actually a highly risk adverse person. I don't like to take risks at all. I hate gambling. Absolutely hate gambling. I hate this idea of walking into a situation where I know up front that the odds are just terribly against me. So mm -hmm. I try to put myself in situations where there's not a lot at stake. And side projects is the easiest way to start a new business, start a new hobby, start a new anything with low odds, low stakes. Because if it doesn't work, the thing this is a side project from is still there. When we started Basecamp, we had a successful consulting business and paying clients. This was paying our salaries. So we started Basecamp on the side and this allowed us to essentially think, you know what, if this doesn't work, no biggie. In fact, not even just no biggie, great. We learned a bunch of things. We got to build something. 
um, we got to, to put something out there, we will come out on the other side of this, even if it totally fails, smarter, better, more experienced, clear win. Why wouldn't I do that? Right? So the side project allows you to sidestep all this anxiety about going on to a new path, trying something new, because if it doesn't work, so what? It's not all on the line. And this is one of those things I really enjoy pushing back against is the entrepreneurial mythology that we should all be risking everything. The reason why these people deserve to be billionaires is because they risked everything. And like they triple mortgaged their house and they worked 120 hours and they didn't see their kids for a decade. And like, isn't that commendable? And I go like, no, that just seems dumb to me. I think it does not speak to 98% of the things that are started in this world. And particularly when it comes to my domain, which is technology and startups, I think it is profoundly untrue and a profoundly damaging and dangerous notion if we equate the idea of entrepreneurship with massive risk-taking. It's bullshit. First of all, so much of entrepreneurship at least half of it is being at the right time, at the right place with, with something. You also have to show up and, and you have to do the work and, and all these other things. But we have to accept that so much of it is about timing. At Basecamp, we've made a bunch of applications over the years. None of it has been anywhere remotely as successful as the thing we happened to put out in 2004, which was sort of, by the way, which wasn't even the first thing we did. We did another thing before that, another side project. Uh, application to manage your books. And it wasn't a big success, but we learned something from it. And then those learnings translate directly into what we knew when we built Basecamp. And then Basecamp just happened to be the right idea at the right time. What I love about side projects too is uh, in terms of economic theory, it's a, it's a way of diversifying yourself. It's a way of putting your ego eggs in multiple bags, right? So if the one thing you're doing fails, and most things at some point will fail, um, then you have something else. People who put it all in on red number six, if it doesn't come up red number six, they've just gone bust, right? They've gone bust financially, emotionally, um, ego-wise, where I thought, like, you know what, that, that seems against like some poor odds. Like, of course, some of the things I'm going to do are, are going to suck, right? Like, I'm going to fail at those things. I can have, endure hardship so much easier in any of these individual domains because I can kind of say like, all right, well, this is not the be all and end all of who I am. It's having this uh, mosaic of a personality that rests on multiple pillars at the same time. So that you're not so fragile that one thing gets cut down. It doesn't all just come tumbling down and, and you go down into this deep hole and you don't know what to do because do you know what? There's endless examples of that happening to people, particularly people who have enjoyed some notion of success. They put it all in on that. And then suddenly something happens, which happens all the time, and it disappears and they don't know who they are. I'm sure you've read a lot of Adam Grant. No? He basically writes two things that are really interesting. They're exactly what you're saying. Um, one is that he actually wrote this article which shows that people who have side projects who that turn into businesses are actually one third, I think he says this, one third more likely to succeed. And often because they are a good level of risk averse, which is really interesting. 
But the other thing that I love that he says is he calls the thing that you're talking about a portfolio of selves. From an identity perspective, it's just so interesting because it's exactly that. But what I think is the big challenge of this whole thing, and I think sort of sits with that whole conversation about goals and motivations, essentially what, what you're saying is like people need to be comfortable being in process, being in beta, being kind of on the journey. I think that's really difficult for everyone to do. I think it's really important. And, you know, I'm sure you can tell from all the stuff I'm interested in that I agree with you. Um, but I do think it's a constant challenge. And I guess I'm curious, like how you do it is like, how do you not, how do you stay in this kind of always beta, always learning, always like doing new things, not settling, learning new stuff, not putting all your identity in one basket, you know, not stopping and feeling satisfied? It's a great and difficult and lifelong pursuit to even attempt to answer that. But where I have arrived in part, and this is where this whole idea of no goals come from. It's a chapter in, in our latest book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, where we say we don't set, for example, financial goals, right? Like this is an absolute stock part of normal business operations is that you have sales forecasts and you have sales goals and you feel bad if you don't reach those and you feel elated for a moment if you do. I don't enjoy those swings, right? Part of my risk averse nature is the sense that I want to arrive at a place of general calm. The goals that we have are, are less goals in this traditional sense of like, I want to get to this milestone, or I want to accomplish these things, and more of an appreciation of certain virtues. I want to be the kind of person who runs an ethical business, who makes the uh, right choices for our customers, for our employees, for me and for Jason. That's difficult. That's time consuming. It's never ending. Like, if you want to be, ethical person and you want to make the right, sometimes difficult choices, you're never going to be bored. <laughs> it's always going to be there. Like uh, next week, there's going to be something new. So setting a certain set of, of virtuous goals, and it sounds so unrelatable, I could say in, in some parts, but part of it is simply, I want to be, for example, on a technical level, a great programmer. What is that? That is a journey of constant learning and challenges. That's a goal that never ends, right? Like I never get to check it off because you know what? Previously, I, I've tried some of that and I got to check off some goals. And what I found was the checking off part was the least interesting part, actually deflating part because you build up all these expectations of what's going to happen. Like for example, be before, um, I made any real money. I wrote about this about uh, the day I became a millionaire. I had all these fantasies about what it would mean to have a million dollars, right? And then I arrived there and I thought like, wow, now everything is going to be different. And my life is going to be so much, I don't know, more interesting, more fun, more satisfying. And it was such a deflating feeling for a while, almost to the point of being um, depressing. When I realized that checking off this goal brought none of those things. I wasn't happier, at least not once the initial elation wore off, which happened very, very quickly. And then it was just Monday again. That was a really key moment for me to realize that, like, here I get to this goal that, I mean, perhaps one of the most common goals in the world, like become financially independent. I reach this goal and I go like, yay, confetti. And then I sit back and like, oh, shit. Like, I, I, mm. this isn't it. Right. And then we tried other ways. And he's like, 
for lots of people, they go like, okay, well, then that wasn't it. Then it wasn't a million dollars. It was $10 million. It was a hundred million dollars. And you know, it's like, that is a path that I very quickly realized, okay, I mean, that seems unlikely, right? Like it seems unlikely that I would be materially more happy with $10 million than I was with $1 million. And $1 million didn't make me all that happy. Again, disclaimer, asterisk, privileged life, all the sort of fine print on that. I fully understand it. Um, but that brought me to this understanding that where I want to be and what I want to optimize for is a general sense of calm and well-being, hours well spent. For a lot of people, what the goals end up doing is that they end up compromising the rest of who you want to be or uh, compromising the rest of your general well-being. For example, startup founders, lots of them have this goal of, okay, I want to build a unicorn. I want to sell my company for a lot of money. And in the interim between them setting that goal and achieving that goal, they do a lot of things they really do not like. They live an incredibly unhealthy lifestyle. They have no other social relations. They don't develop other capacities and facets of themselves, other personalities. And they justify it all with the goal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Life sucks. I'm completely exhausted. I work 100 hours a week. I don't sleep enough. But one day... When I get to the goal, it'll all be worth it, right? And that's the delusion you need to puncture because once you get to that goal, it won't be all worth it. It really won't. If you spend an entire decade with one thing in your mind that kind of uh, brought you through your 20s or your 30s and what the only thing you have on the other side is I built a successful business that made a lot of money you are absolutely positively going to look back upon that with regret. And I'm not just saying that from personal experience. I'm saying like this is basically the experience of, of humanity, right? Harvard did this uh, longitudinal study that ran over, I think, like 100 years or 80 years or something, where they tracked uh, Harvard graduates from 1910 and forward. What was the conclusion at the end? What produced happiness and satisfaction what produced a sense of a life oh, that yeah. was had been worth living it was your relationship with other people that, that that was it everything else was so dwarfed by this core conclusion that it was your relationship with other people how can you not take that to heart find people who achieved all the things you could possibly achieve in life financially or or, or otherwise, and they end up on, on the last day thinking, mm. do you know what? It was about my relationship with other people. Which brings us to this other cliche, which um, constantly true, right? Rock stars at the height of their fame and their achievement and their platinum albums, right? It, it is a stereotype that they crash, right? They've been chasing this. You've been putting your existential direct on pause, right, for this entire journey, then you reach the end of it and you go like, shit, it wasn't worth it. Mm. Have you read um, Emil Durkheim at all? So he talks about anime, which is, I think, what you're talking about. But he basically talks about, you know, it, that's like the lottery winner or the millionaire or whatever, which is like, I think you're talking a bit more about expectation reality, whereas actually anime is a bit more about like uh, a dramatic change in circumstance, which disorientates your like mean your sense of meaning in the world yep have you read um the i think it's called the paradox of choice yes yeah you know how he talks about i think about this all the time the hedonic thermometer yes 
Yes. That's what it reminds me of, which is like, there's a great study that he talks about. Um, again, I'm going to like butcher the actual details of it, but it's something, it's, the essential point is he, he got a bunch of people to anticipate how they would feel um, if they were, do you know the thing I'm talking about? You're nodding. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, how they'd feel if they won, uh, I think it was a million pounds and, and how they'd feel if they um, became paralyzed and they grossly over and underestimated the impact of them. And then it, st- it steadied, I think, to about five on both cases or something like that. That's exactly right. And I think that's exactly the kind of scientific conclusions that should disabuse of, of this, of, of goal setting in general, as a general principle. Again, not that there can't be something to it or there, there can't be some thrills out of it or, or there can't even be some pockets of yeah. motivation. But in terms of a, of a life direction, right, a lot of people will insert these things, these extrinsic uh, goals as to be their beacons. It, it, maybe it, it can be milestones along the way and can help you chart your path through. But if these are the main beacons you direct your life after, you're going to end up on the last day with regret. I want to talk practically because I agree with you, but I think that there is something in between the two, right? So yes, we shouldn't be setting these kind of um, extrinsic goals and, and, and sort of, sh- it's almost like shutting off everything else and not being alive in the day-to-day in the pursuit of that, only to realize that the day-to-day was all we had, right? But then that said, I think in order to have a direction and and some and some level of of drive in its most basic sense, we do need something to kind of motivate our actions. And I'm curious, because you talk a bit about, so being a good programmer is one of them. I don't believe that you're someone who, being this introspective and reflective on what a good life is, doesn't have any level of codification of, of kind of how you want to live. I absolutely do. And it's just that they happen to fall into the category more of this general historic sense of virtues. Running a business, you're, you're constantly in situations where you can, you can choose a, a shortcut. You can choose a, a path that isn't completely savory, but it kind of gets you to where you want to be mm. if you don't keep reiterating on like, actually, who is it I want to be? What, what kind of company do we want to have? And are those things more important than any of these other um, factors along the way? One specific example of that is several years ago, we had a portfolio of products at Basecamp. I think at the height of it, we had five. And we realized that as, as several of them were growing at the time, we couldn't do it all with the team we had. We were actually grossly understaffed for all the amount of work that we were trying to do. And the absolutely natural, no questions asked default for most businesses was, well, you have a booming business. You should hire a ton of people. At the time, we were, I think, maybe 40 or, or 50 people. You should grow to 100, and then you should go to 300, and then you should go to 1,000, right? That there's just such a unquestioned assumption that this is the path of success. Well, we sat down and thought, do you know what? Do I want to run a company of 300 people? Like, do I want that to be my day of sort of endless meetings of middle management, of all these other things, of what you have to do when you run a large company? And both Jason and I decided with ourselves that, you know what? No. We don't want those things. So we did the opposite of chasing all that growth. And we shut a bunch of it down, even profitable businesses. We just said, we're not going to take on more. We sold some of it off and we focused on one thing. And we said, this is what we have to do if we want to do that one thing excellently. And we don't want to be a bunch more people. And I want to continue to have a life where I get to spend a lot of my working time doing my favorite things, writing, 
talking, programming, uh, not all the mechanics it takes to run a large company. It is difficult to arrive at decisions like that if you run your life mm. based on a set of traditional business goals. In fact, it's incompatible. Whereas if you run your life on a set of virtues of the kind of person you want to be, the kind of business you want to run, it's much easier. And this was one of those things that were directly informed by some of those um, experiences of, for example, becoming a millionaire, right? Where you, you have to sense like everything's going to be different. And then you realize, oh, shit, it wasn't. As, as you said in, in the study, it was plus 5%. Versus when we've doubled down on simply the basics of we want to run an ethical company that does excellent work for, and, and treat their customers fairly, those things, they're evergreen, right? They don't even have to be revised on a weekly basis. You have to remind yourself because it's, it's so easy to stray, but they don't have to be reminded and they can never be checked off. If you think about on a day to day level, like making decisions. So I've written this actually uh, down, which is from your book, which is we come in peace. We don't have imperial ambitions. We aren't trying to dominate an industry or market. We wish everyone well to get ours. We don't need to take theirs. And I think that is such a mindset of abundance. You don't need to fight. You're not going to be priced. You're not going to be taken out the market. It's so hard to cultivate that mindset of abundance. And I want to know how you do it. It is very hard. And this is why we try to play this counter melody all the time, because every other force in society is pushing us towards the scarcity mm. mindset. This comes back to this idea of uh, being risk averse, right? Um, if you go in with an abundance mindset, as we talked about with the side projects, that what is the worst thing that can happen here? The thing fails on, in terms of an economic thing, but I got to be an excellent developer building it. I still won, right? For me, what I try to do, I, I try to line up all these possible futures when I start on something and find a way such that I'm okay with all of them. That's my mm. personal path to tranquility, if not outright happiness, is, do you know what? If this thing happens, let me think about it. How can I act according to my beliefs, my virtues in this situation? Okay, I can be okay with that. We just launched a new product, uh, Hey, a new email service, Hey.com. And when we were building it, I was constantly talking myself this because, again, as we talked about, once you've had one success, we've had a big success with Basecamp over 20 years. It brings up all this anxiety. What if we fail with the new thing, right? Will that be embarrassing? Will that be really difficult? Will we feel like we really wasted our time? And I needed upfront to basically be okay if like no one cared. So no one yeah. showed up. Um, if just like a few people cared and a few people showed up. And then if a lot of people showed up and a lot of people cared, right? In the first case, this was one of the reasons I went in with such technical vigor. Like I'm going to build this thing. And if all I get out of it at the end of the day was I got to use the fullest of my capacities to build the best thing I possibly could build, how can I be anything else but extremely pleased? That is a joyous celebration of human uh, capacity, right? It requires no one to show up. I can be thrilled that I just spent two years of my life on this. And no one showed up or no one cared or no one signed up. And it was, it was the other thing was I was also building this for, for me, right? And so was Jason. This is how we generally build products. We build products for us. And then we hope that there are other people who are enough like us that they will be um, interested in, in it on, on those merits. 
When you do that, then the worst thing that happens is you ended up building something really nice for yourself. Again, wonderful. And if then uh, a few people have showed up and gone, hey, I got to share this wonderful thing with a few people, that's great. And if a bunch of people showed up, that's also great. Lots of people got to enjoy it, right? So here are three potential paths that a new endeavor could have taken. And I upfront, before we even started, was programming my mind to be, I'm going to be okay with all that because I can't control it. I can't control yeah. the reaction of the market. What I can control is my own efforts as I put into it and my own reactions to the market. This is what the Stoics keep trying to bang into our heads, right? Um, that you, you have to deal with the things that you can control and getting upset or getting elated about things that are outside of your control is, is placing the locus of control outside of yourself, which is just leads to a, a, a wavelength life where things are up and then they're down and then they're up and then they're down. When um, I have found that I'm more interested in, in a little bit more of a horizontal uh, line, not that there aren't swings. I mean, that's part of the human experience, but that those swings are not neither devastating or uh, exhilarating to the point of euphoria. Mm. On the point of, you know, you were talking about speaking on Twitter and having sort of strong opinions or being negative on Twitter. One thing that I think is interesting about you, and I, it makes sense that you act or you, or you think about life from a kind of perspective of principles or, or virtues, as you say. I mean, I suppose, as I say, you've reached a certain level of kind of social capital and economic capital that you can, I guess, afford to take some of those risks. But, you know, you speak very um, critically, especially of Google and, and Amazon. Amazon, obviously, because I know you've talked about this loads, so I won't labor the point. But Amazon, you, you know, you've had a relationship with Jeff Bezos. He invested in Basecamp and you had a working relationship with him. And so you know him personally, but you still aren't afraid to, I guess, hold him to account uh, or hold Amazon to account. And maybe there's a distinction there um, on Twitter. And I'm just curious where you get that courage or confidence from, because I think a lot of people would like to act from a place of conviction more than they do, either whether it's working for a big company themselves or having worked for a big company or, you know, the many layers along the way of life where you feel like your voice is, is, is quiet. And, and sometimes it's a positive thing. It's just social um, politeness. And sometimes it's a negative thing because it doesn't hold people to account. So I guess what I'm curious about is where do you get that confidence from and how do you remove the fear of ramifications by speaking so openly about things that you care about? It's a great question. And I think it's one of the things that I feel like has been true for me basically my entire adult life. It did not require me to achieve a certain level of financial or reputational success because the underlying principle for me is, am I afraid? Am I afraid what's going to happen if... I speak what I think or believe to be true. Am I afraid that that truth is going to hurt me? Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I've tried to structure my life in such a way that no individual has the power over me to make me regret speaking that truth. And... That has been from, from a, position of, a position of perhaps growing up in a, a socially democratic state of Denmark where like uh, negative visualization is one of the techniques out of the stoic handbook. And negative visualization is all about imagining like worst possible outcomes. How would you cope if your business blew up? If the death of a child, if you lost use of your legs, all these sort of terrible things that could happen. 
playing those out in your mind and kind of fortifying yourself for the possibility that these things could very well happen. Some bad things are going to happen to you. That's a guarantee. No one makes it all the way through life just on a puffy cloud and nothing bad happens to them. I did the same thing with business, for example, right? Like what happens if we get crushed by, let's say, Apple, right? We just had this scuffle with Apple about the hay launch and, and they literally had the power to crush the business. And could they crush me? Could they crush my spirit? Could they cause me to have regret for spoken what I believe to be truth at the time? No. And it's, it's about being ready and comfortable with the fact that, okay, hey, I've, I've had a great run, 20 years of business success and economic success and so on. Do you know what? If that got reset tomorrow and I'm back in a small apartment in Copenhagen as where things started, I, I, I don't have a lot of money. Like, can I still do many of the favorite things? Can I still read books? Can I still program? Can I still be engaged in open source communities? What does that require? And once you get to that point, or at least once I got to that point, and I got to that point quite early on, I think you develop a, a sense of, or you at least you cultivate a sense of fearlessness in the sense of consequences, right? Now, again, that is a privileged position, and, and perhaps you, you can't afford to develop that uh, fearlessness if you are responsible for other people in an economic sense, in a different kind of society where you will literally starve or be on the street if you offend the wrong people. Um, entirely possible. I am the opposite of that, right? Like I'm the, on the opposite end of having any fear of, of starvation or not having a roof over my head. And therefore, it's almost an obligation that I speak out, right? It, it is the easiest for me of most people to weather any consequences that could possibly be thrown my way that requires me to do it. The other fact, of course, is that people speak truth to, to power and truth to consequences all the time without that safety net, right? Mm. They do it because of the convictions that they feel very strongly about. And, and I admire those people. And I actually think that whenever I do that, it is so easy. I have this huge safety net. Like I'm barely risking anything. There's nothing heroic about shitting on big tech monopolists on Twitter when I literally have so little to lose, right? Um, and, and therefore, I actually think it, it is my obligation to do so. I think, you know, it's that point of loss aversion again, which is actually the more that you've gained, both in terms of financial gain, but also in terms of status. Yes. And so I actually think, you know, if you look at the founders of some of the biggest companies, there's a reason that they're so quiet, you know? Yes. You do have a lot more to lose than a lot of people. I'm talking very much with like a Western lens here, especially in, in countries where there isn't the same sort of privilege of freedom of speech. But I think a lot of people don't do it who have a lot to lose. And so I, I don't think that's necessarily true. I, I think, yes, that's correct. I, I think that analysis is correct. And that's exactly why we need the Stoic teachings, because the default wiring of the human brain is loss of vision. And you have to consciously counteract that and counterbalance that with higher ideals than simply, mm. do I have something to lose? This was one of the reasons I latched onto stoicism in the first place, because I don't know, for whatever reason, I'd, I've been doing negative visualization almost my entire life. I've been imagining bad things happening uh, since a quite early age. And 
using those thought experiments and thought tests to fortify my own psyche for, mm-hmm. for those things to happen. Such that when they did, it wasn't, it wasn't this calamitous event. And once you've done that, once you've developed that, and particularly once you've tested your fortifications, like it's very easy, I think, to delude yourself into saying, oh, I'm so <laughs> strong. And then something bad happens and you realize, oh, I'm not so strong after all. Um, yeah. I've had plenty of adversity happen in my life and had a chance to test those negative visualizations and realize, you know what? It's going to be fine. But it is something that you constantly need to remind yourself of. In the open source world, like I had a lot of success with Ruby and Rails and a lot of people adopted that. And then um, for the technically minded people, I, I've long been very interested in something called Turbolinks, which is a, an approach to developing the uh, the web. And like, do you know what? Not a lot of people cared. Not a lot of people cared. And I thought like, do you know what? This insight I feel I've had here is as important or as groundbreaking as the insights I had with Ruby and Rails but no one cared, right? I, I think about this all the time with, with musicians. Um, I had some friends that are musicians and, and if they've had some notion of success, they often go, do you know what? I didn't know it was gonna be this song. Why was it this song that took off? The same thing with books. So Rework, um, I think is actually a, a great example. Rework went up to, uh, on to be a New York Times bestseller. We've sold more than half a million copies, like great success, right? Then the next book we wrote, Remote, Office Not Required, did like a tenth of that. And we thought like, hey, we're on a roll here, right? And and we got a contract, a book contract that was um, comparable to the fact that we had just had a big bestseller success. And then we didn't have a bestseller. Remote was not a bestseller, right? It, it got the timing wrong by about seven years. It was published <laughs> in 2013. And clearly we should have published it in in the spring of this year. And it would perhaps would have been a success, right? But that was a great example. And I actually thought in some ways, the remote book was a better book. Right? I thought the fundamentals were better. And I certainly think uh, now we've published, um, it doesn't have to be crazy at work, which is the most recent book we've, we've published. And it's somewhere in between. The launch of it was not as successful as Rework was. Rework is the most successful book that we've written. It was written a decade ago. I think without a doubt, the new book, it doesn't have to be crazy at work, is a, is a far superior book. It, mm-hmm. it, it goes deeper. And it's just more interesting, in my opinion. Yet that's not what people rewarded. And even more to the point, in Rework, we've had this sense of like, what what are the chapters that people really like, right? What are the ones they really quote? And one of the top three chapters that people reference is this thing about watching the waves, right? Like you're supposed to be, be like a surfer, watch the waves, see where they break. And like, I gag whenever I read that line again. I think it's just so trite, so banal. So stupid, really, in base. And I'm like, Jesus, I hate that that's a chapter that people really resonated with because I feel like it said nothing. It was just such a platitude. Yeah. You're like, hello, I've just done a genius piece of work. But it's also, it's wonderfully humbling. Do you know what? Maybe the new thing you thought was oh so damn clever is not so damn clever at all. Maybe people are right. Maybe there is profundity in watching the fucking waves. I mean, I can't find it, but maybe that's just because I'm not looking hard enough whether I wrote it or not. Did you write all three books, you and Jason, or did you ghostwrite? No, no, we, we wrote all of it. And, and we wrote all of it because we enjoy doing that. Um, now, it should be said, reworked. we worked with uh, Matt Linderman, who helped uh, compile it, and almost all of it started as blog posts. Rework in particular was essentially the greatest hits of everything we'd written online, plus 20% 
novel content uh, in the in the 10 years prior to that. It doesn't have to be crazy at work, it was similar. Many of the core concepts we had developed in either keynotes or blog posts or, or tweet storms. And why did you want to turn it into a book? I think the wonderful thing about a book is that it has a, it's almost like a, being an editor on the output of your own ideas, right? The, the, the kind of people I reach when I just tweet on a daily basis or I blog is a narrow group of people who generally have chosen to follow me because they want to hear what I have to say. With the book, you have far greater opportunity to reach new people with an entire body of work, with an entire thought system. And this has probably been the most satisfying thing about Rework. So Rework sold more than half a million co copies. We would never have reached all these people with blog posts mm. or with Twitter feeds. Whether you're sharing software, whether you're sharing lessons, or whether you're sharing what you believe to be insights, um, that's just, that's fun. It's a key component of, I think, human happiness is to cultivate some of those relationships. I feel some of my best relationships are with authors that died 2,000 years ago or 150 years ago. And I can have very deep relationships with those authors I have almost conversations with them, at least with their ideas within the confines of my own skull. And, and it forces you to distill your best ideas. And I love this notion, right? Like I love editing. It, perhaps my favorite part of writing is editing, is to take sprawling a set of paragraphs and boil it down to just the seven that truly nailed the idea. So you were writing them while you were running Basecamp, just on the side? Yes, these were side projects in the most literal sense yeah. of it. Yes, yeah. for the record. Uh, <laughs> yeah, for the record. Side projects, we were just taking it on as projects we were doing in addition to the other work that we were doing. For me, much of the best writing that I've ever done, the writing part, as in committing the words to the keyboard, that's the easy part. It's the thinking part that takes a long time, which is why most of the books, virtually all the books we wrote in three months, um, three to four months, and then there was some editing phase perhaps after that, and not as a full-time endeavor, right? Like this is three to four months of side project work. And the reason you can write a book like that in that amount of time is that you've already thought the thoughts, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. you've already, in some ways, you've literally already shared the thoughts in terms of blog posts and so on. And in other ways, you've at least thought it or it's been bouncing around inside your skull. So it sort of comes out there. I just, um, I, I just got infatuated with this song by um, Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac <laughs> was where I was writing, or the band I was trying to get. Fleetwood Mac, um, Stevie Nicks, the song Dreams. There was just this great cover and there was this whole uh, TikTok meme with this guy going down the highway on a, on a skateboard. Just, I got infatuated by the song. And then I read into the origins of the song. And Stevie Nicks, uh, while they were recording this other album, at one point simply just woke up, had this idea for the song, sat down, banged the whole thing out in 10 minutes, did an initial recording in another five, and essentially in 15, 20 minutes had nailed the song. Right? You think about like the creative process and how long it is and so on. So much of it is capturing lightning in a bottle, right? Like mm. the inspiration is there. Like my job is, is simply just to get it down. I sit down to write because I feel like I have something to say. And that was the thing about that 
dream song by Stevie Nicks too. Clearly she had something to say. Putting it down, that wasn't the hard part, right? And same thing I have with blog posts. The vast majority of, of everything I've ever published on the internet has been written and edited in, in less than 30 minutes. I'm curious whether you do ever suffer from from feeling, God, I just can't, I can't be a contrarian anymore. Like it's too exhausting or, or I can't just constantly keep trying to really think about, is this how I think about the world? I just want to kind of, you know, go along with everything else. Do you find it difficult or have you got to a place where it's not difficult anymore? Uh, that's a good question. So I just took this two month break where I tried not to at least communicate any of my ideas, not to mean anything or, or, or share opinions about anything with the rest of the world. And I thought it was a, it was a really good break to take. I think it's, it's any, anyone who is on Twitter should take often and frequent breaks. And I hadn't taken that long of a break since I jumped on Twitter, what, 12 or 13 years ago. But what I also realized at the end of that was um, I am just a person who like to share what I think. Like I get energy from that. It's almost like, are you an extrovert or an introvert? Do you, uh, does being with other people in person sap you of energy or, or fill you with energy? I'm an introvert. I get very exhausted if I'm amongst a, a large group of people. Um, and I need to sort of recuperate after that. When it comes to sharing your opinions and engaging with the world and the public forums and so on, I'm, um, I'm on the I get energy from it side of it, right? Like, I don't actually get exhausted by getting negative feedback. In any, if anything, I, I get more elated. I get more fired up about it. So in some ways, it's fuel. Now, some of that, I think, could be practiced, right? I've been an internet person uh, writing on the internet for 20 years. Some of it, I think, is, is simply just to, to find a style of engaging with the world that works for you. Like, I don't think you can change being an introvert. Perhaps you can find ways of coping with being in social situations repeatedly if you are an introvert. But I, I try to accept on some terms just the fact that I am an introvert. And at the same time, I'm also trying to accept on some terms that I am a person who likes to engage with the world vigorously loudly and publicly. Hmm. Do you ever feel lost? In a true existential sense of the word, all the time. And I think this is why discovering sort of these two branches of philosophy, Stoicism and existentialism, have been in some ways both helpful and illuminating and in some ways also like staring into the abyss, right? As in, uh, this is it, right? That's the other thing I've perhaps struggled with more now than I did earlier. And, and one of the curses of reaching whatever goals you might have had for certain things. When you're inside the hamster wheel and you're just running and you're running and you're running, it's not necessarily time to think about like, oh, what does it all mean? Is this it? Is there nothing else? And to some extent, sometimes I, I actually miss that. I miss this sense of ignorant bliss, actually, or this, uh, this um, illusion 
that, okay, if we just reach the next goal, like things are going to be so much better, right? If you could somehow delude yourself into thinking that's true, you can push off a lot of other things and a lot of other um, scary or dangerous or challenging thoughts that you're forced to deal with once you've gotten everything you wanted. <laughs> um, I, was it uh, Keanu Reeves or, or no, not um, um, Jim Carrey? He has this uh, uh, saying, I, I wish, I, I wish, I wish everyone to, that, that they would um, get everything they ever wanted or, or get all the money that they ever wanted. And they'll realize that that's not the answer. And it's one of those things that it's almost impossible to convey because no one believes you, including me. I didn't believe neither. I think Jim Carrey said this before I ever um, got financially successful. And I just, I thought it was just so fake when I heard it because like, how can that possibly be true? Like on the financial level, for example, if you have all the money to buy all the things that you want, how could that possibly not just make you so happy every day? And it's almost, it's one of those experiential truths. You, you cannot convey it with words, right? Like someone literally have to have some experience, um, perhaps on psychedelics or perhaps otherwise, or maybe they're just endowed with a, a natural view on the world that allows them to, to know this up front. But for lots of other people, we are trapped within the uh, capitalist ideology that constantly have us on this hedonic treadmill. Reaching oh the next thing I'm going to be happier right there was another wonderful study that looked at um, um, how much money people had and how much money they felt that they needed to be secure yeah and it was it was a one to two factor for everyone if they had a hundred thousand dollars they thought do you know what if I have two hundred thousand dollars I'm really going to be happy if they had a million dollars it was like I need two million dollars to be happy if they have a hundred million dollars they were like I need two hundred million dollars to be happy and that in itself just tells you that the brain plays tricks on you right like it. It deceives you all the time. And this is why you actually have to um, introspect, but also have to learn about some of the common pitfalls that the brain will drag you into. And unless you learn to identify those pitfalls, you will fall right in just alongside everyone else will fall into it too. The cross we have to bear uh, as humans is that we're constantly struggling with the search for meaning. Funnily enough, it's also a wonderful book on the topic, literally called uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He talks about logotherapy, found, finding the things that, that give you meaning in life, right? It is actually better to some extent to even have false goals that you can trick yourself into actually thinking mattering than to stare at the other end and they're like, ah, like, what is it all for? It, it, it's a difficult thing to, to wrestle with. And it's one of these other things. I think it was actually Durkheim. Um, that wrote the the study of suicide in the early mm, 20th yeah. century where we like why are there rising levels of suicide in affluent societies this is one of the um mm -hmm. dilemmas that uh, sociologists have struggled with for a long time and i'm from denmark in scandinavia generally have uh, very good social safety nets and so on and they also have very high levels of suicide Versus if you look at more earlier stages of society, this just was not a thing. When people knew their place and it was simply ordained to them, they were in a certain caste. Like, it may have been miserable. It may have been backbreaking work. But you kind of just had a human security in being like, I am in this role and it is static and it is not my own fault that I'm a peasant. Right? Like I'm, I'm not constantly walking around thinking, oh, man, I should have been a prince. I should have been a king. It was a very static society and it gave some psychological security versus this new era and this modern time we live in where technically, supposedly, meritocratically, 
everyone can become a star. And actually, it's kind of your fault if you don't, right? Like that is what society keeps reaffirming to us over and over again. Like, look, this person went from nothing to everything. You could do that too. Yeah, technically, theoretically, but most won't, right? What most will simply just end up with a lot of time is this feeling of inadequacy. Like that must be a personal failure of my kind, which is, is one of the cruelest tricks I think the modern society has played on humanity. This displacement of responsibility such that the individual has to carry all of it. They are responsible for all their own failings and all their own successes. And this is, of course, culturally somewhat different in, in, in the U.S., it's the most extreme example of that, right? Like every poor person deserves to be poor because they could just get a job and work three of them and then they could earn enough money and before they know it, they could be a millionaire too. The problem, the burden we put on so many people now, especially in the entrepreneurial communities, is that if they don't achieve those things, um, it's their own damn fault. I'm going to let you go, but I just want to ask you one last question. You were very early in talking about remote work. Lots of people have talked to you about that. Um, but you were also early on kind of lots of different things, you know, years ago that have now become sort of accepted or, or exceptions mainstream. What idea do you feel you have right now that is misunderstood or underestimated by, by people that you think in five to 10 years they will accept as a truth? Wow. I think it's, it's one of those questions where it's almost like the best way to um, predict the future is to invent it. And one of the futures I want to see, which has thankfully gotten a fair amount of traction just in recent years, is this notion of the dangers of monopoly, uh, of concentration of economic uh, might, and particularly in the, the tech industry. I'd say Three, four years ago, that was a very fringe position that no one gave a damn about. Uh, now there's a groundswell of support for it, but I still feel like it's it's outside the mainstream as a um, as an idea that it is bad for us on a human level, on an economic level, on all the levels or moral levels to have a few companies that control everything, even if those companies make nice things that we like, right? For me. The one that really needed to flip was Apple, right? Like for a long time, I've been a big Apple fan. Let's just call it that. I've been appreciative of their products. I, I love a lot of things about what they put out. Now, I need to, or I have developed the capacity to keep that thought in mind. I can like the nice products that they make while at the same time think, you know what? I think it's really bad for all of us that Apple sits on such a huge slice at Duopoly together with Google on all mobile applications and that they are the sanctioning body for every piece of software that goes on to the most important computer in people's lives, the one they have in their pocket. That's bad. Monopolies are bad. Concentrated power is bad. We should not be cheering on, as I actually did in a early life, when Apple would keep posting these astronomical quarterly financial earnings, right? Like I went like, yes, here's a, a technology company that actually cares about turning a profit because I had had all these beefs with so profoundly unprofitable tech companies that were very unstable and, and, and so on and so forth. But it kind of turned sour at some point. We were like, do you know what? Um, I don't know if we should have any companies worth $2 trillion. I don't think it's, it's, it's good. A smaller Apple would be a better Apple, both for Apple themselves and for all of us. And Apple with more competition would be a better apple. 
Like we fall into these tribal camps very easily, particularly in technology where we're like, I'm, well, I like Apple, so I, I hate Google or I hate this other things. And I, I just want this thing. I want my team to win. And now some of those teams have one and we realize, you know what? Shit, we need more teams. <laughs> um, I don't care if my team won. What we need is more teams. The game is getting rigged. So that is one of the, the features I'm current or futures I'm currently advocating heavily for is to turn the tide of public opinion on that, to take these technology companies out of the idyllic, naive idea of like, oh, they're just great. Oh, isn't it great that you can get a free Gmail? Isn't it great that you can get free YouTube? Oh, isn't it great you can connect on Facebook? You know, it's not that great. It has all sorts of consequences, and we've left many of them unexamined, and it's way overdue that we that we do examine those things. That kind of plays into a broader thing, perhaps partly personal awakening about income inequality and the way the world is, is, is going. Um, reading Piketty and the whole R is greater than G, the return on capital is greater than the growth of the economy, and therefore we end up with consolidation of um of wealth was really instructive to me. Like it really provided something that I, I, I hadn't verbalized before. Like it just feels wrong. Like why is it that I remember say the eighties living in a lower middle-class uh, neighborhood in Copenhagen with such joy about the way things worked that I cannot recognize when I look at, for example, my newly adopted country of, of the United States, how the working class lives there and the struggles they have for healthcare or for education or for housing. It seems like we're going in the wrong direction. Things like uh, wealth tax as a, as a concept for, for how we fund a broader, more equitable and more just society is, is, is something that's currently quite on the fringe even in, in democratic social countries like Denmark. Um, and I think we're going to move to a place where it isn't. When are you going to move into politics? Oh, God, I hope never. <laughs> no, no, no. Politics is the ultimate surrender to the, the voice of the people, which in some ways is its function. Right. But it also is completely incompatible with all the things we just talked about, of how I personally secure a calm and reasonable life. Um, politics is, is, is awful, which is why historically I think awful people do it. Perennially, people go like, oh, the politicians are so bad. They're so bad. You know what? If all politicians all the time end up eventually being so bad, you know what? It's probably not personally individual failings. It's simply because this is. It's a system that produces that kind of outcome and it attracts those kinds of people and it corrupts people in that way. I feel much more at ease and perhaps it's also just easier to sit on the sidelines and lobbying arguments and bombs from a perspective of not actually having to solve all the things. I feel like we need people like you on the front line of putting pressure on policies around climate change and climate action. Yes, I think it's one of those things where I, I've... I read um, The Uninhabitable Earth. Wonderful summary of where all the science is right now in climate change. And the reason I don't spend that much time talking about it is because it's just so profoundly depressing and I am ultimately profoundly pessimistic about where it's all heading. I don't think we're going to I don't think we're going to do it. I think the world is going to heat in catastrophic ways and 
that's the time where we collectively are going to feel like, oh, we should do something about it. And when I say we should do something about it, I say we should make the real change it takes. When I look at what's currently going on, right, we've known for a very long time that we are heating the earth, right? It's gotten scientific consensus for at least the past 25 years. Since the inconvenient truth came out, we have added, we've doubled the amount of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. That was one of the stats from the uninhabitable earth that just blew my mind. Since Seinfeld first went on the air, we've literally doubled the amount of greenhouse gases that are in the, in the atmosphere. And we knew at the time that this was gonna end badly, right? We continue to set new all-time records, although this year is gonna be a little bit different because of, of COVID and so forth. Um, and even countries where you think like, this is a country that should really be able to do it. Like my, my neighbor country of, of Denmark, right? Denmark have their fucking windmills and their solar cells and they have all these proclamations of like when they wanna be carbon neutral. Um, and then they don't, they don't, there's no political will to actually do it, right? Like. It's, it's profoundly depressing. And I think it's uh, depressing. And I think there is no economic or, or will to do it because so many people are going like, you know what? Yeah, it's coming. Even if I accept the science, but it's not me. It's not right now. And also I have more important things to worry about. It's almost like people have to feel it. And I've, I've lived in California now for many years. And for the past, I think it's now four years straight, we've had catastrophic wildfires. I think that is unfortunately... I hope I'm wrong, uh, but I think unfortunately that is what it's going to have to take. People have to personally feel the catastrophic consequences of climate change before they're willing to do and vote for politicians to, to make the changes that are necessary. And I don't see that happening soon. It's kind of almost like the, uh, the thing with the pandemic when it started. Uh, it was a great uh, uh, public uh, health person who was saying, everything we do in preparation looks alarmist and everything mm -hmm. we do afterwards to deal with it looks too late. I think that's exactly where we are with climate change for a lot of people. I, I mean, I've, I've tried to do some introspection on this too. I've done my own carbon budget and I realized, for example, that traveling by airplane is um, <laughs> not good. And yet still, I, I mean, I do. I mean, not that much this year, but I did. I recently rewatched Cowspiracy. Um, I've been vegetarian for 20 years and I rewatched Cowspiracy. Uh, the first time I watched it, I was like, oh, vegetarian, not really a thing, is it? Like they're very interlinked, the dairy industry and the meat industry. And then I rewatched it and I was literally like, how could I not be vegan? I don't, you know, and, and now I'm vegan. I felt a sense of optimism because it was like, it's not hard, you know? I think there are a billion good reasons to be if not vegan, vegetarian, and I think animal uh, cruelty is a key one. Like anyone, how, how you can watch how animals are treated in production of, of foodstuff. Um, and then just go back to eating your bacon is an amazing feat of, of human sort of denialism, right? You can on the one, like I am a, a kind, caring person who care about the welfare of animals. And then I'll watch how animals are actually treated in our food production. And then... I'll feel awful about that for, for a while, and then I'll go back to eating my bacon on, on Monday, right? And when it comes to, to veganism or, or vegetarianism, this has been known for a long time. And like, the conversion isn't happening by itself, right? Like, so all the evidence is there, just like it is in climate change, all the evidence is there, why it's a good thing. Um, people aren't switching, right? So it gives me actually 
tremendous pessimism um, that like even on something like that where it should be so clear cut, we could just go like, yeah, 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 we really should do that. And then we don't. A lot of people, they will pick one thing, right? And they'll go, all right, I'm not going to fly anymore or I'm not going to eat meat anymore or I'm going to recycle my plastics, right? And the unfortunate truth yeah. is we have to do all of it and all of us has to do it all at the same time to, to fix it. And it just seems, yeah, I'm, I'm usually quite an optimistic person. Climate change is, is not an area of optimism for me. And I think we're going to absolutely face three, four percent of, of heating and it's going to be catastrophic. And uh, um, in some ways, this pandemic has been a preview. Right. What we've just gone through with the pandemic in terms of how much of a difference it's made to essentially everyone on the globe is but the smallest preview of what we have in store when the planet heats. So on that wonderful note, <laughs> and we're also just uh, 30 minutes into the time that I thought we, uh, <laughs> we had books. So this is perfect. Is that me? No, I think I, I got it wrong. I, I don't know why I... I think actually I've gotten this wrong so many times and so many people have gotten it wrong so many times that there's got to be an invention that's lacking here for us to discover, like we should have global time that whenever you do an appointment, it should just be in, I, I think the SWATS group, they tried to do this in the nineties, they called it internet time. And like, it just meant the same time around the world. But anyway, I'm glad we connected. Love this conversation. Um, thank you for having me. This was, this was wonderful. Thanks so much for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you want to check out more about Out of Hours, head to outofhours.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do consider leaving it a review.